and it is sponsored by the Court and Legal Affinity Group of ASLH. But even before we get started, we're giving you a disclaimer because we decided that historians, there really shouldn't be any questions that you don't want people to ask. But the challenge that we have is to try to anticipate those questions and in advance to prepare and be prepared to best answer those questions. So if you have any complaints about maybe the slightly misleading title, come and take it up with me after the session. Don't pick on the panelists, they're doing a great job. Our distinguished panelists um, are each going to take on this challenge from a slightly different perspective. All three have a plethora of museum research and archival experience, so I've pre prepared only the briefest of introductions of each of them so we can spend most of the time talking about the topic at hand. Linnea Grimm is currently the Director of Education and Visitor Programs at Monticello, and she's going to share with us in her initial presentation time her experience in training staff to answer tough questions with the goal on consistency and accuracy across the entire staff. Prior to joining Monticello, Linnea worked at many prestigious institutions, including the Curator's Office at the U.S. Supreme Court and at the Smithsonian. She holds a BA from William and Mary and a Master's of Art in Museum Studies from Cooperstown Graduate Program. Lori Beatty, the second of our panelists, is the Senior Director of Museum Programs for the soon-to-be-opened National Law Enforcement Museum, and she'll share with us the challenges of convince, convincing administrators and other non-museum personnel about the importance of raising questions that they'd rather not discuss. They don't want to talk about them. Like Linnea, Laura has worked at numerous institutions, including the Department of the Interior, the Holocaust Museum, and the Smithsonian. She holds a BA from Gettysburg College and a Gettysburg College and a Master's in Museum Studies from George Washington University. Our third, the third member of our panel is Brenda Martin, and she's a Prairie Band Potawatomi. She's going to try to share with us this perspective from one group of people who are often the subjects of those tough questions that we get asked, and how we can keep them open to and engaged in this discussion. Brenda, like Linnea and Lori, has worked for many different organizations many different organizations, including the Fort Collins Museum, the Women of the West Museum, the Southern Ute Cultural Center, and at, the Nor and at North Dakota State University as the Director of Minority Student Affairs. She currently works as a consultant, and she holds a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in cultural anthropology from the University of Colorado. Our plan is to give each of the panelists an initial 10-minute chunk of time to discuss our topic about tough questions from their particular angle. Linnea is going to start out with talking about staff, Lori with the non-museum personnel, and Brenda with the people. And then the rest of the panel time, we would like to engage you in questions that you'd like to discuss. And as time allows, the panelists all have multiple examples, but I cut them to 10 minutes to start with. And that leaves me in the position of the enforcer, so I will be the timekeeper in trying to keep us all moving on time. We thank you again for joining our program. There are evaluations on the seat, and at the end of the program, they'd like you to fill those out before you leave. Linnea? So good morning, everyone. How are you all doing today? Um, Sorry, we don't have coffee. Right, no coffee, but we will get to the coffee soon. So when I first agreed to sign on to the session, I spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, what questions don't I want visitors to be asking? And that 
police, I don't never believe what happened. They're talking in the courtroom about the freeze, and right above um, the bench, there are, is a tablet with 10 Roman numerals. We know from the person who designed it that they intended that, that to be the Bill of Rights, first 10 amendments to the Constitution. And I think that there's it said, these are the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. The representative said, what are those? <laughs> <laughs> really the only question that I haven't wanted somebody to ask. Okay, so I'm now at Monticello, and just give me a high five sign if you can't hear me talking. I'm not very much of a behind the podium type person. Um, if you are not familiar with Monticello, it is the home of Thomas Jefferson on the back of any nickels that you might have, and we're located in central Virginia, about two hours south of Washington, D.C., an hour west of Richmond. So if you plan to go to the conference next year, we hope that you will come out and see us. Start by going over our mission and vision because those are critical to thinking about how we do respond to questions that visitors ask us. You can see that our mission, um, probably similar to many of yours, is developing a vision for us. And this is our new vision statement, which is to engage a global audience in a dialogue with Jefferson's ideas. So the reason that I place both of those up front is, okay, so what questions don't I want people to ask? Questions are really key for us meeting our, our vision. You can't have a dialogue So I worked on thinking about how do we reshape what we're talking about today, and it's really what subjects are difficult to address, um, particularly those that are emotionally charged. So these are the ones that if you're sitting around your Thanksgiving table with your family, you try to avoid, right? You're not going to be talking about religion, politics, or sex. Um, they are also the ones that tend to be more complex. And then I added this third point, um, carefully scripted by a governing, governing body. Um, that's more from my time when I was at the Supreme Court. We're standing in the courtroom giving presentations. The court feels fairly strongly about what we can and cannot say. And it can be a bit difficult when you are trying to interpret where you think, okay, there, there's some rules that I need to follow here and make sure I do say something or that I don't say something. And that can be tricky to navigate as well. But here's the real key. What's sensitive is really what's, what people are thinking about and what they want to talk about and what's relevant. So here are the relevant yet sensitive topics um, that we face at Monticello, and I probably could have had the list go on um, even more extensive than what I placed up here. Um, just for the sake of time, because we are trying to do about 10 minutes each, I'm going to focus really on the last point here, 
which is a um, Jefferson and Sally Hemings, which is probably our most controversial or well-known, <laughs> get applause, like uh, topic, right? <laughs> okay, so how do we know this is actually what's on visitors' minds? I know this might be a little difficult to see in the back, but um, we have a web resource called the Jefferson Encyclopedia. Um, it's at wiki.monticello.org, and it is a wonderful resource of uh, collections of scholarly articles that have been developed by Jefferson scholars. Uh, we can tell what search terms people are entering on the Jefferson Encyclopedia. And so what I did was I asked for what are our top 20 in the last year and a half. A number of them relate to quotes, so if you see something that looks like the beginning of a quote, it's because people are trying to find out, um, is this something Jefferson said? Oftentimes, it's not. Um, and then the ones that I put arrows next to are these sensitive topics. So for example, slavery is key. It's um, obviously on pe people's mind thinking about Jefferson, as is religion. Slaves is another term that they're entering at about 13th most frequent. Sally Hemings is on there as the 17th most frequently asked question into the Jefferson Encyclopedia. Okay, so just in case um, you're not coming in already thinking about Jefferson and Sally Hemings, I want to do a very brief history of what's gone on in the scholarship. This session is really to be focused on how we talk about this sensitive topic. So if you have any questions about the actual debate, I'm happy to talk with you afterwards um, and explain our current thinking. But Essentially, the debate about whether Jefferson had a relationship with Sally Hemings was raised in about 1802 by a newspaper man named James Callender. Um, and those, that idea has really been circulating since that time. Later in the 19th century, Jefferson's grandchildren said, no, couldn't have been possible. It was probably these other two men that were the fathers, uh, father or fathers of uh, Sally Hemings' children. Um, however, one of Sally Hemings' children um, published a memoir in 1872 saying, no, Jefferson was my father. So then in the 20th century, most Jefferson scholars said it was out of character for Jefferson to have been the father of Sally Hemings. They said, just looking at all his writings, we have about 19,000 letters of his. This just, you know, doesn't fit within his character. Um, so that was the predominant thinking until the late 1990s. Um, and based in the late 1990s, a um, couple of large books came out, Annette Gordon-Reed's American Controversy, um, as well as a DNA evidence that showed that there was a genetic link between the descendants of um, Sally Hemings and the Jefferson family, and actually ruled out the other two people that Jefferson's grandchildren had identified as the probable fathers of her children. So that's where we ended up right at the end of the 1990s. The Thomas Jefferson Foundation took all this information in, had a report done, um, and published the report saying this is now what we believe. And we use this basis, the basis of this report as how we instruct interpreters how to interpret about Jefferson and Sally Hemings. And I'll let you read. Can you all see that pretty well? Or would you like me? So it's really a high probability that Jefferson 
fathered Eston Hemings and that he was most likely the father of all of Sally Hemings' children. At the time, I was not at Monticello, um, but we asked all the guides to begin saying this on tour. And we do have a requirement now that all guides mention Sally Hemings while they are on tour because we don't want people leaving Monticello thinking we're not talking about it. At the time, we did have a few guides quit because they were not comfortable um, saying this position, even though we said, you're not presenting your own position, you're really presenting the position of the foundation. So um, what do visitors then ask about Sally Hemings? What I find interesting is that there's been this academic debate, which I just went through how it's changed over time, what scholars are thinking about. Visitors, though, they're not going to be asking the questions we want them to ask, which is, oh, what evidence are you using? And why do you weight one particular piece more so than another? What they want to know is 100% true or not true is Jefferson the father of Sally Hemings. So I have a couple examples of the questions that have come in to us um, via email. I love the fact that, that somewhere in a plantation in southeastern Pennsylvania, they're talking about Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Um, and this person wants to know, is it 100% true that Jefferson was the father um, of Sally Hemings' children? And they say, what do you say? And then this one just came in recently. Um, thought particularly interesting. In short, none of us lived during Jefferson's time, and none of us will ever know the whole truth, so why present Sally Hemings' tale as fact? This is egregious and unfair to this great man's legacy. So right in there, we're getting the second component to when there is a difficult question. People tend to make it fairly emotional. There's something that's hitting home to them. There's something about Jefferson's memory, um, preserving Jefferson's memory, that is particularly important to this person. And again, goes to that question of, there's just one fact, like he is or he isn't, and you know, it hasn't really gotten to that broader um, way of making a conversation about it, at least in this letter. So I wanted to share a quick clip of how we do address Sally Hemings on tour. All our tour guides script their own tours, so not everything that the one person I'm going to show you here is said by all the other guides, but it's to give you a sense of how we try to cover it, obviously in a tour that has to talk about a whole host of other ideas other than Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson. So it is fairly short um, when we cover it. So I'm going to cue it up. I apologize in advance that we don't have um, audio plugged into the computer. So I'm going to hold the mic to the, the um, computer microphones and hope that that picks up OK for everyone.
but he held on to his slaves his whole life, freeing only seven out of hundreds that he owned. And when he died, he died regretting that his generation, and that generation included George Washington, James Madison, James Monroe, so many of the slave-holding founding fathers, his generation, Jefferson regretted, failed to eradicate what he called that blot on the nation that was slavery. Slavery was a moral injustice that was widely recognized, but a moral dilemma that for that generation at least simply evaded resolution. Questions so far? That was uh, one of our interpreters, David Ronca. Uh, and one other thing that he did in that clip, not only was he talking about what the foundation believed um, to be true about Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, he was using um, quotations, which is something that we encourage our guides to do, use Jefferson's own words. We have so many of them, they're so beautifully written. We try to use them whenever possible so that we can present the actual primary source documentation to the visitors. So just to end on some additional questions that I hope we will come back to. Um, I think some of the keys to handling these difficult questions are first hiring the right staff. Uh, and we have some questions we use in interviews to try to get at how will people react when they are asked about sensitive subjects. And then making sure they have the right training. Uh, we have a training session in, that all new hires go through that is about talking about Sally Hemings. Um, they need to have the information in order to be able to talk about it comfortably. And then lastly, um, question for all of you is, do you want to reduce emotional responses? Those visitor comments that I put up, clearly there's a lot of emotion in there. Is it something that we do want to try to turn that down a little bit so we have more of a conversation? Or is it good to be eliciting those types of emotions when we're talking about these sensitive subjects? So I'll leave that for, for some thinking. Good morning. For those of you who came in late, I'm Lori Beatty, Senior Director of Museum Programs at the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C., and it does not yet exist. In 2000, the United States Congress and Bill Clinton authorized the establishment of a National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, paving the way for the nation's largest and most comprehensive museum covering the duty and sacrifice of America's law enforcement officers. Our mission is to tell the story of American law enforcement through exhibits, collections, research, and education. The museum dynamically engages the broadest possible audience in this story in an effort to build mutual respect and foster cooperation between the public and the law enforcement profession. By doing so, the museum contributes to a safer society and serves to uphold the democratic ideals of the U.S. Constitution. So that's our mission. It's also a challenge. And uh, Liz alluded to the fact uh, in her opening comments that um, 
I am a museum professional, and I'm building, helping to build this museum with non-museum professionals. How does one create a collection that is well-balanced and looks at and documents the work of law enforcement from a 360-degree perspective when one is working with non-museum people who are so pro-law enforcement as to want to only depict the good side? And what do we as museum people do when we think it's important to have that 360-degree balanced approach. And I'm, I'm thinking a lot about what Linnea was talking about, and I would encourage you to think about those same questions that she's posing as I go through this one small slice. And I also want to say, I'm not anti-law enforcement, or I wouldn't be working at this museum, <laughs> which I've been, actually, I've been accused of being anti-law enforcement by somebody on the staff because of some of the things that we'll talk about today. So I've been there four and a half years. It's been an interesting four years of tightrope walking, sometimes trial by fire, but it's always been very interesting. I want to start the example I'm going to give first, and then there are many others that we can talk about as we open up the floor for, for conversation. I want to start off with an event from 20 years ago. And it's interesting, I've got an example from 20, 40, and a hundred years ago that has all have brought about questions. Um, but this event from 20 years ago has mired both me and unfortunately the parent organization CEO in what I consider quicksand. And again, I want you to think about what Linnea was talking about. Um, I'm going to talk about Rodney King. For those of you under 35, he was in the news last week because he's marrying somebody who was on his jury. But um, for those of you under 35, and also it's been an interesting learning opportunity for me. I, I used to watch cops on TV and had one perspective, and I'm sure many of us watch cops and all that stuff. But anyway, law enforcement employs across the, the board, law enforcement employs what is called a use of force continuum wherein an officer must often make split-second decisions regarding what a perceived threat is and how to meet that threat. And I'm not going to go through, but you can see it's just being there could be that, um, going up to the fact that you're, you're shooting to kill someone. But that is because the threat to him or her has been, this is the level of force I have to use. They don't all start, I've learned, with their weapons drawn. There has to be a threat to have that happen. In the early 1980s, in an effort to keep law enforcement officers safe from people who were high on PCP or other drugs, the Los Angeles City Council reviewed the approved use of force continuum and decided to move away from the then approved chokehold to police batons, which were in fact metal pipes. They're not the wooden batons that we think of as billy clubs, but they're metal pipes. At the time, Councilman Robert Farrell declared that it would, quote, be more cost effective for the city to settle claims for broken bones of combative suspects who are hit with batons rather than to pay settlements, end quote, in chokehold cases. So we're looking at a public policy decision by elected officials. On March 3, 1991, after a police chase, Rodney King was eventually stopped for speeding, and the chase before he was stopped often exceeded 100 miles per hour. 
When finally stopped, the other people in the car obeyed police verbal commands, were handcuffed and taken away. King did not. Once he was stopped, he exhibited, exhibited bizarre behavior, resisted arrest, and actually shoved away four police officers. Based on their observations, officers thought he might be high on PCP. So you can see how this continuum, force continuum may play in. They started with verbal commands. They tried a swarm technique, which is where multiple people go for an arm and a leg to, to subdue the person so that he can be handcuffed. They tried stun guns, and they finally had to go to batons. At that same time, George Holliday, an individual living nearby, began videotaping the remainder of the incident from a distance. And those of us who are over 35 are familiar with this. I'm not going to play a lot, but we're going to play it. Ooh, very quickly we're going to play it. <laughs> That's interesting. Let's try that again. So he's down. You can actually, in some instances, see the taser wires still on him. Enough, right? Enough. Okay. So they're not all on him. There are people standing around. Okay, I'll stop. Oh, that's interesting. Let's go to the next slide. Oops, let's not go to the next slide. There was a lawsuit and a trial. And despite this videotape, a jury in Simi Valley concluded a year later that the evidence was not sufficient to collect the officers on police brutality. Within hours of the jury's verdict, Los Angeles and surrounding neighborhoods, uh, cities erupted in riots. When it was over, 54 people had lost their lives, over 7,000 people had been arrested, and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of property had been destroyed. The civil case, this is the first case, was loaded with lessons for federal, state, and local officials and may be seen as a classic case study for public administration students to learn the consequences of public policy making. You will remember the elected officials, officials changed those use of force rules, which then encouraged Los Angeles police officers who encountered continually resisting suspects to move up that continuum of force spectrum to eventually hitting with batons, which is what you saw. I, like most non-law enforcement people, I was surprised to learn that nearly all of those procedures, and this is pre-working at the museum, all the procedures that were caught on the tape were deemed proper use of force by experts on both sides of the trial. That these officers did follow the then in place approved procedures for use of force. And those had been put into effect 10 years earlier. As a result of the lawsuit and riot, um, resulting riots, LAPD did have a commission look into what happened and use of force procedures were changed. But that's not the end of the story. And it's not where we have yet gotten to in why this is a quicksand issue. There was a second lawsuit in which four of the officers who you saw in the video were charged with violating King's civil rights. Two were found guilty and served 30 months in jail. There were no riots at this time. To talk about the event, the act that police policy that police procedures were changed as a result of this, the fact that there was a public policy decision that resulted in what happened seemed like a slam dunk for us. The other thing that was really important for us, because we want to talk about how is the public's perception of law enforcement 
affected or molded by the media, we felt that the fact that a 17-second clip had been shown over and over and over again on the news, especially CNN, and to the point that a CNN executive called it wallpaper, that in and of itself had an impact on public response at the end of the first trial. So we felt, again, slam dunk, good opportunity to talk, and again, the questions that Linnea brought up, fabulous. In visiting a law enforcement museum in Los Angeles, law enforcement museum in Los Angeles, I found some parking meters that had been in one of the conflagrations and the, the face of the dial had melted down on the parking meter. There's not a lot of stuff out there to collect and the director of that museum said, we'll give you one of the parking meters. Well, happy me, I went back, talked to our board of directors and said, guess what I've been able to get from this law enforcement museum in, in California? And um, silly me. Unknown to me, and here's a lesson, not necessarily a question. Unknown to me, the union that represented the two police, or the four police officers at the trial sit on our board. When I talked about the parking meter and how delighted I was to find something from that whole event, both my CEO and I were raked over the coals. We cannot talk about Rodney King. We cannot talk about Rodney King. And so what has been interesting is I talk about Rodney King as much as I can. <laughs> and I talk about it with law enforcement officers just to get a sense of what do they think about this? Should we or shouldn't we? And other than the union, everyone with whom I have, sp have, with whom I have spoken has said you need to talk about it because of the public policy, because of what happened, and because you're a museum. You should be able to have these thoughtful conversations inside your doors. Well, I know I'm almost out of time. Um, what I have done for the last two years is lay low. I really think very carefully about what I talk to the board about, but I'm not, not collecting. And um, you've saw, I'm sorry, I, this is sort of like the punchline. Um, a friend in San Francisco bought this from a street vendor during the riots in Los Angeles. And it says, support the police, beat yourself up. And so we've got t context for this button, but I haven't, I mean, it'll be cataloged, we may use it, but I'm thinking in time, as time moves away from the event, we'll eventually be able to have something about this in our exhibits, we can do programs and so on. So I'm stopping. And next. Well, let's just get you out of here. Okay. myself. Nope, that's you. Okay, let me try this. Yeah, there you go. All right. Whoops. You guys want to see this a little bigger, don't you? Let me put it on the slide. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I told you. like microwaves.
I thought this was a perfect quote by Maya Angelou for the beginning of our conversation for me. I came in late to this panel um, Friday. I got a call from Liz and was asked to fill in for an individual who had unfortunately had to drop out. And so as I thought about this um, session and what I could contribute, I realized that most of my life was answering difficult questions, spent um, answering diff difficult questions about identity and um, issues that race or dealt with um, emotional issues, as Linnea said. Um, and so in my professional career, um, it's been about how do we deal with history and the pain that it often invokes in us as individuals and our society as a whole, and yet um, recognize it for what it is, face it, and try not to do it again. And I realized that for me in the museum world, in the world of multicultural education as director of minority student affairs, um, program manager for the American Indian Science and Engineering Society where I was a liaison with corporations and government agencies and all of our tribal student representatives and professional representatives. Um, in those multiple roles, I've had to answer a lot of questions. And often they are based on emotional and personal stories. And I found that if you begin with facts, and this has taken me a really long time to figure this out. Um, as an academic, you're, you're stuffed with facts. And when I go into Indian country and home, you know, I have a doctorate degree. I went through the academic process and I'm told I need to be re-educated when I go home. So those are those issues that walking in both worlds play. And so again, I relate to facts. And I have found in, in preparing for this session, I looked at some of the questions that the um, Liz, the organizer, put forth for this panel. And one of them, the very first one was, how do you um, incorporate these difficult questions using the opportunities of a museum to address the history and through your exhibits and your publications and your programs? And um, I think two years ago now, I was really hit over the head with facts. Start with facts because facts people can grasp and it keeps them in a comfort zone. So for example, if you're to do an exhibit, how many people here work in, in museums on a daily basis? Okay. So um, this is a pot. It's a bowl. It's a membrane's black and white bowl. It was dated and found in 950 to 1300 AD in Arizona. In the oral tradition, when you talk to native people, this bowl had a hole punched in it to let the spirit of the bowl be released when it was buried with its owner, or I shouldn't say its owner, with the dead person on its the person's chest. Archaeologists confirm that. They found it in archaeological sites, facts, but it's also tied into the oral tradition of the people of the area today. The issue that this bowl could be used then to deal with 
that's difficult for people to grasp and to talk about is that this is considered a funerary object. So it was donated to a museum without any provenance, which means they didn't know where it came from. But because it had the hole in the bottom, they knew that it had been found in a gravesite. So that meant when this museum was dealing with the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act and consulting with tribes, this object needed to be especially discussed as being a funerary object and falling under the law of NAGPRA. So when you're telling your visitor about the story of this object, you can go through this type of a, a program in, your, in the telling of the story and lead up to the more difficult issue. Um, instead of starting with NAGPRA, which is in a very emotionally driven and uh, charged um, issue. How many of you in your museums have dealt with NAGPRA? Okay, so you understand how that can elicit emotion on both parts. Another example I wanted to share with you is um, a project I've been working on for four years and it could keep going for a hundred. Wish I could live long enough to keep going. Um, but in northern Colorado, the city and county bought 35,000 acres and on that 35,000 acres, which is now open space with hiking trails, biking trails, and horse trails, the Lindemeyer Archaeological Site is located. It's the most famous Paleo-Indian site in North America. It was, it's nominated, it's off the list right now, but has been nominated for a World Heritage Site. Um, it was excavated in 1934 to 1940 by um, the Smithsonian Institution and the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and founded by some local arrowhead collectors. Um, when the city bought it, it's on their part of the land, they knew they had to protect that. My concern was that even though the museum I was working with at the time, the Fort Collins Museum, had the largest collection outside the Smithsonian, the museum and the city and the county did not know what else was in this landscape because it had been ranching land privately owned for 150 years. So from the time the native peoples had been moved and relocated to reservations from that area, no native person had been on that site. So what we were able to do is tell people because in northern Colorado, this is the place for the locals to put their heartfelt emotions into the history of what they know about native people. So it goes from the Ice Age 10,000 years ago to today, and no one understands the story of the native people in between that time period. So we start with the facts of the Lindenmeyer site um, and what its significance was um, is that the story about it then is that this site demonstrated that yes, there were Paleo-Indian hunters and they were hunting bison antiquus, which is now extinct, but what they found during the excavation was a spearhead embedded in the bones of this extinct bison. So at the time, in 1934, what that did was push back the belief by the experts in DC at the Smithsonian that native people hadn't lived, had lived here longer and more than three to 4,000 years ago. Here was the proof. Here was the smoking gun. And so now we know that there were 
indigenous people on this landscape. The issues that that raised and the question as you work through this is how long have native people been here? And are these the ancestors of the people we know today? And archeologists, anthropologists call them Paleo-Indians. They call this the Folsom culture because they call that the Folsom point. Native peoples don't relate to that. And they said, you may not know us as the, the Ute or the Comanche or the Kiowa, but we, were, we are the descendants of these people who came before because in our oral traditions, we have the stories of the ice and we have the stories of these larger than life animals. So you have to start that conversation, which raises lots of skepticism and because of this emotional drivenness to know exactly how things are and who was here and, and when, this can be a heated topic. My role as um, director of Minority Student Affairs, I had to deal a lot with the mascot issue. I was at North Dakota State University, um, but up the road was the University of North Dakota and they were the fighting Sioux. And in those dealings with mascot issues, this came up on our next question of how do you deal with um, issues that, um, uh, let me change this a little bit, that are contemporary issues that can then enhance your exhibits and your programs and your topics and make it um, part of the conversation to let people know um, in most museums that Native people do exist beyond living in teepees. First of all, that we do exist. Um, and then that we don't all live in teepees. And, and, you know, actually we eat McDonald's, which we shouldn't. But, you know, but, but then what, what, you know, are the mascot issues? Because that comes up all the time. And so this is a really good contemporary issue to show that Native people are still here and we're dealing with a lot of things that aren't only in the past, which is what you know local history museums tend to focus on, but we have contemporary issues that are still really embedded in, in past issues of, of race and um, self-determination and governance and all of these bigger, larger themes. And so these are some images that create really good conversations, especially when you're talking with children. Um, you know, what, I, what this leads to on the left is a picture of a Seminole um, uh, being honored at one of the, is it University of Florida, Florida State? Florida State. Thank you. And that brings up the conversation that you can have, well, you know what, not every Indian is the same. There were 500 plus languages at one time. And today, even though Native people make up only 2% of the United States population, we represent over 50% of the diversity, the cultural diversity, because of the number of languages and varied cultures. So the Seminole have agreed that they are okay with this, but other tribes like the Lakota, the Fighting Sioux, are not okay with this. How do you take your child to a football game when the opponents are making mockeries of you and yelling and chanting very detrimental things like kill the Indians, amongst other really profane things, <laughs> I won't share those with you. 
But then you also have the issue of the noble savage. You know, most Americans have a, a visual of an Indian in almost two ways. It's the noble savage or it's the drunken Indian. And there's everything in between. So these are just some good ways to um, begin programming in, um, in, um, in positive ways. And then some examples of how tr um, different groups are dealing with this and folks are dealing with it. I'm doing consulting work with the Southern Ute um, Cultural Center and Museum in Ignacio, Colorado, which is down in the four corners of Colorado. And they're building a brand new facility, which will open um, in May of next year. So what they've done is taken a history of boarding schools, um, and this is the original men's dorm, and they're incorporating um, a kind of a living component within their permanent gallery of what a boarding school was like, so that you can really you know, visually kind of engage yourself in the boarding school and they're telling it from their perspective. So what you're seeing nowadays is with the um, really big push in the past 10 years of, of more native cultural centers and tribal uh, museums, et cetera, it's the interpretation and the representation of native people. But the challenge is for a lot of folks, they say now that we have the National Museum of the American Indian and now that tribes have their own stories, let them tell them. But the reality is tribes need to partner with the museums that are already out there who still continue telling stories in the past to let native peoples do the interpretation and representation. So that leads to my last slide for right now are examples of partnership and what do you do. So in Fort Collins 10 years ago, I was hired to work as the um, NAGPRA coordinator. And so during the consultations, um, we repatriated and reinterred 18 individuals. We have one more individual to take care of. Um, but what happened out of that were the part, was the partnering with many of the tribes that have historical ties to the area to look at ways to educate people in a really proactive way. And we decided, you know what? Music across the board is something that people can embrace. So, the very first um, music festival that we had, they have, it's been five that they've had, they'll have six, um, and they've incorporated into an Indian market too, so it's really grown. But this is what people wanted to see, was the traditional native drumming and flute playing. And we so happened to have on stage, one moment in time, a rock band. And a visitor came up, participant in the comp, concert came up and was really angry. She had come here to hear flute music and drums because she wanted to hear Indian music. It was an Indian music festival. And um, so the director of the museum said, well, how do I handle this irate woman? She goes, go, go talk to that gentleman over there leaning up against the museum. And the fellow she was pointing to was um, one of our advisory board members and he's a Lakota fellow. He's tall, long-legged, Levi's on, cowboy hat and his braids. And she went over and she said, well, where's the flute music and the drums? I want Indian music. Where's the Indian music? And he said, well, you see that rock band up on stage? And she said, yeah. She said, you see that lead guitarist? And she said, yeah. And she goes, that's my son. He's from Rosebud and Pine Ridge. He's Lakota. And he's an Indian. And he wrote that song. And that's his music. And he's an Indian musician. And he's, he plays Indian music. 
So over the years, we've gone, you know, we have a mix. When they perform, they have a mix from the traditional to rap and hip-hop and rock and roll and country and classical, the whole range. And what that has allowed are people to see that Native people are still tied to their tradition because the oral stories and the tradition is tied into all this music and all the art and all the things that are embraced within that weekend and throughout the year in, in programming. And it allows people to start moving in a different direction without maybe so much of the emotion. So I think on that note, I'm going to end. And so we can have time for questions. Why don't we give all three panelists a hand for their initial presentations. And maybe they're deserving of a special appreciation that I didn't have to come up and yank any of them off. I, I had my watch and they all were very, did a great job of monitoring their own time. So now we kind of, they all have more examples that they can talk about, about tough questions, but really we wanted this to be a discussion and we thought some of you might have questions that you brought for your institution that you'd like to share of a tough question and how you dealt with it or you'd like suggestions from the panelists or the audience about how to deal with it. And I think um, Brenda, you know, at the end there, touched on something that we talked about quite a bit in our brief but thorough <laughs> pre-panel meeting was the idea of keeping the subjects of these tough questions engaged. And Linnea, I'm sure, has the same thing with African Americans, and Lori's got it with police officers, about how do you make them want to participate in the conversation, not to say, oh, you're just stereotyping me and I'm going to leave and tune out. So the same problem we have with our teenagers, how to keep them from tuning out and to participate in the discussion and feel like they're valued and are a part of the discussion, not just being talked to. So um, do we have some questions that you'd like or to share or to ask the panelists? I kept them on time so that you would have time. <laughs> Do you want to stand up and then I'll actually repeat your question at the end into the microphone for the recording. So I worked at State Facilities Center for some of the decades, particularly three years ago. Um, one of the objects that we had that was that stands to you for a long time is you have the tape record discs um, and our, our previous uh, administration and boards have been very careful to keep it well So his question is about, well, one, I guess the institution has decided to display the electric chair. So they have the State Historical Society has the state's electric chair. And for a long time, it was kind of hidden back in the storage room. And now they, it's been decided to bring it out and, and use it in the museum. 
but how do you garner the resources to prepare for such an obviously will probably be um, controversial might not be the right word, but certainly will raise a lot of questions and bring a lot of attention to your institution. So how do you prepare for that? And panelists? I think probably they'd like it if you'd come back to the microphone, because if you're sitting at the table, they won't pick up their recording. Well, first of all, anything that most museums do above and beyond with Native Americans requires additional funding. So the music festival, for example, it's always a fundraising, um, grant writing um, process. And the Lindenmeyer site, um, I was able to start, um, we, we received a few state grants to bring archeologists in to do an assessment, a, a cultural resource assessment of the land. And they came up with hundreds and hundreds of sites um, in that landscape. And I had a National Park Service Preserve America grant doing an oral history. So I was bringing native people onto the land as well as talking to the ranchers and the settlers and the resource managers, et cetera. And we were able to get a handful of native people up there to look, but not to the same degree that they needed to be able to be on that landscape the same way the archeologists had to do assessments, not of just physical places, but other potentially um, important, relevant spiritual places, et cetera. And so that, we, we ended the grant. And the goal is to institutionalize funding. And I realized, you know, right now with most institutions because of the economy, but it's, it's difficult to do. But institutionalizing is one thing and additional fundraising is always necessary. So it's finding the target group who has something behind the sharing of that information of that electric chair and why it was used and how it was used, et cetera, is, is target fundraising. But um, Before I was hired and when they were first starting to think about how are we going to introduce the public to law enforcement, I've been told that they wanted to start with an old Sparky. And that changed and I'm really glad because law enforcement's not about the death penalty. I mean, there's a whole paying your taxes as part of law enforcement. If you don't, they come get you. Um, I think it's also really interesting because I'm thinking it's a public policy conversation. You know, uh, what the local community is interested in as far as how they deal with people who have done such heinous crimes that they feel that the life needs to be taken. So from a curatorial perspective, and I, I, I was thinking it's really interesting because it's really programs. It's not just the interpretation of the, I mean, you've got, I'm thinking again, you've got the facts, you've got the oral tradition, and, and then you've got the, the issue. So I think from a public um, curatorial perspective, you can do all your research, you know the facts, you know when it was made, where it was, where it was used, how many people were put in it, and all that kind of thing. But um, because it's a public policy conversation, I'm, I just wanted to sort of say my thing about it from a curatorial perspective, but I really think I want Linnea to talk about it from, from an educational perspective and how you might, and I have some ideas of things you could do, but I'm gonna. Well, I guess from the education perspective, I have a question, <laughs> which is what would you hope to do with it? What's Right. That in order to do it right, 
to say something that may sound a bit frustrating, but it's one of the lessons. I, I attended a um, seminar for historical administration, which I will give a plug to if anyone wants to learn more about it. Please ask me. I was there just last year. Um, and one of the lessons I took away with is that it's not always the right time to do something. And so um, sometimes it is all about timing and preparation. And maybe you do what you can do right now to make sure you have all the research on it, to make sure that you can move forward when those opportunities arise. But I would be careful of saying, oh, we just need to get it on display now without really getting the whole picture. And, and maybe it is just going to take a little more time to be able to get the resources to, to find out what you want to do. back well to Linnea's thing too about training the right staff. You have to have the, when you have certain objects on display, it's very important that you have the right people. You don't want to avoid talking about it, but you want to make sure, and I would think again, like your consistency across your interpreters and talking about Sally Hemings and about that. Sure, say something else. Oops, she's going to say something else and we'll take your question. Something else, no. Um, <laughs> what's really interesting to us, we have a, a competitor museum that's opened in the last two years in Washington, D.C. called the Museum of Crime and Punishment, uh, which we often during police week, which is in May, we have officers thinking that's our museum, and we keep saying, oh, no, 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 no. Um, they have a, a, an electric chair there, and I haven't heard any controversy about it because of the context in which it's being exhibited, so. Sir? So his question was about tours at Monticello. When the controversial topics are handled in a specific tour, only during given times, so not enough people would be engaged right. in the topic. Definitely, and that's something that I still think a lot about today. Um, but there have been a lot of changes at Monticello, especially in the last five years. We recently opened a, a visitor center, about 42,000 square feet, um, in which we have a number of exhibitions as well as a visitor film. Um, within the exhibitions, within the film, we are also talking about slavery and um, Sally Hemings. And then just recently, we opened a new exhibition called Crossroads, which is right underneath the house and it ex examines how the white world and the enslaved world came together and what those interactions were like. And so we're giving people a lot more opportunities, different types of opportunities, to learn um, about some of these sensitive subjects. What I continue to work on is how do you have, just on basic house tours, ways of um, talking about slavery that doesn't make the house tour all about slavery. I mean, we have 450,000 visitors coming through every year, and they do want to learn about Jefferson. But you need to be able to paint that house and 
and put in their imaginations what was it like to be here at Jefferson's time. And of course, that talks about an enslaved maid walking across the balcony. And so sometimes it's just dropping phrases like that so that people can envision that it wasn't just Jefferson living in this house by himself. Um, and so we routinely talk with guides about how to do that. Yes, and we do still have plantation community tours. We offer them six times a day. Um, they are seasonal because they're outside, um, but we do offer them during February um, on weekends. And we're also looking at how to use some of our new classroom space that's within the visitor center to be talking about these issues in the, the colder months. So stay standing up, Linnea. <laughs> uh, we are in the process of doing a survey as well. Okay. Uh, elevator lanes, they can be using a survey as well. And I would just challenge you because there are frontline um, interpreters and they do volunteer. Some of whom are very comfortable talking about the subject and others who aren't. We have tested effective for training to So her question is, she works at a historic house museum that also has to deal with issues of slavery, but the majority of their interpreters are volunteers, some of which are more comfortable than others handling, talking about slavery and what are Linnea's suggestions maybe about training. And I'm going to piggyback in a little question of my own there. I was wondering how many African-American docents or interpreters you have, and is that something that you um, consciously are trying to recruit more? Do you have them talk about it in the same way? Just throwing my own two cents in there. <laughs> Um, let me start with the second question first, which is right now on staff we have one full-time African-American interpreter. Um, during the summer we had two additional interns who were full-time African-American um, interpreters. I would love to see the diversity of our, our guide staff in general increase, um, both in terms of age as well as um, ethnicity. Um, Staff within my department altogether, um, interpreters, some are part-time, some are full-time, about 75 to 80. So we're talking very, it is a very small um, percentage. Um, talking about how, how do you start training someone to talk about sensitive topics. My two responses are, first, you need to be able to give them a lot of good content and background. Probably each of you, as you've been working in your, your professions, you know the more comfortable you are talking about something, it, you have this wealth of information you can fall back on. Um, so it's being able to make sure they're feeling comfortable with that content. The second thing is making sure that they are aware of the potential emotional reactions that might happen. And I'm a firm believer in role playing as much as you can. Um, you, sometimes using the words of the visitors who have come through. We've had African-American visitors who say, this is just, it's a very difficult site for me to visit. Um, and it, it fills me with sadness. And so being able in training to talk about, okay, these are some of the emotions that people are going to have while they're on a plantation community tour, possibly in the house, lets the guides start to prepare to think, okay, um, I'm going to be talking about this content, but I also have to be watching to see what is the emotional reaction. And then the last thing I'd add is listening. Um, so giving their visitors a chance to say something. If they see there's something going on, if they see that body language, if they see some type of emotional reaction, probing just a little bit to, to say, okay, kind of tell me what's going on. I know this is a difficult subject, but if you can get people talking a little bit, 
you have a better chance uh, of keeping them engaged. I think that follows up really on kind of what Brenda was talking with the rest of us about too, is about the way you start the conversation. Instead of starting down, you know, to acknowledge that it, it's controversial and to be sensitive to the, the people who are listening and to try to get them, it's very important, I think, to get them to maybe buy in is kind of too much of a, you know, a cliche type word, but to have them feel like they're a part of the discussion. And Brenda, maybe you could that's add more here. That could actually be extended to any of these any, any time, any time. Just real quick, I think that addresses another issue. When you said, Lene, the percentage of African-American docents that you have at Monticello, there's an issue with um, interpretive services in that light. Um, who's telling the story to the visitor? And, and so in working in Indian country, um, literally, it's hard to go into a national park and have a park ranger give you a tour that's a Native American in many, many cases. Because those parks, are many of them contain sacred sites and you don't go back and walk along the ruins like at Mesa Verde or Chaco Canyon because of beliefs of what's still engaging their ancestors in that space at that time. So they won't go into those places necessarily or it's very uncomfortable and so, you know, for us now in Indian country, having um, the interpretation is a great opportunity because they're in their own place, you know, as a cultural center, et cetera. But again, there needs to be a lot of work to bridge this gap, to bring um, these diverse and underrepresented populations into these other places to tell the story. And maybe they're not your, your frontline docents, they're special tours that are offered or something, but it, it's a challenge right now. Probably have time for at least one more question. I hope someone else has something. Yep.
so the question is the um, if acknowledge apologizing for mistakes, and I'm sure, or Brenda can probably address this from a Native American perspective too. Do you expect the institution or the government reparations type issues issuing an apology? Um, where do institutions fall in that? And I'm not really sure it's fair to you know put Linnea on spot for all of Monticello. So well, answer no. whatever. Answer <laughs> right exactly. Um, but I think it's an interesting question, and I I actually do want to throw it out back to the audience, which is that question of apology. And kind of central there is, is, is an apology, does that help you with interpretation moving forward? You know, what, what would be the, the real purpose there? And is there, I mean, is that useful to our dialogue, I guess? I think that would be my response is that I, I would rather go through and say, okay, here's, here's the documentation we have of why we were saying what we were saying. Um, in talking about historiography, there's an excellent book by Frank Cogliano, um, who's a Jefferson researcher, who did just that, talking about, okay, how did um, the issue about Sally Hemings, about slavery and Jefferson develop over time? And this is, uh, this is where we've gotten. I saw one other hand. I see a lot of a lot of good coming from from getting the information, the research out to people, and really focusing on getting that out. Um, that I think that's where my brain is kind of going with that. I don't I'm I'm not sure everyone in the room heard this gentleman. He works with church history in the Mormon Church, and he was talking about incidents of the Meadow Creek Massacre. Is that correct? Mountain Meadows, Mountain Meadows Creek Massacre, and how the church has been coming to terms in the last 
five, ten years with going back to the original documents and kind of um, laying out all, all the information out. And I think that's probably a good note to um, close on in terms of a session about dealing with tough questions is that the most important thing is probably is your research, to work on your research, work on your research, be prepared, and that the research is always ongoing, that you might have the answer that you think today, but who knows what technology or what new discoveries are going to come up. So you have to be prepared to keep reworking your presentations and your training so as new information becomes available that you um, change your programming as appropriate. Um, we have evaluations from ASLH on purple paper. I think that you might all have them on your seat. If you don't have one, if you'd raise your hand, she has some extras there in the back. And we thank you all for coming to this program sponsored by the Court and Legal History Affinity Group. We're already working on a fantastic session for next year looking at maybe the operation of courts during the Civil War. So we hope you put it on your calendar and look for us in the program again next year. So thanks again to our speakers. Thanks for your time and your preparation, and thanks to all of you for coming.